sunlight you just want to praise Jesus don't you yes we do let's have our prayer then we'll begin our study our father in heaven thank you for this day thank you for the lives that you've blessed us with and in whatever state they're in whether we're feeling well or we're struggling we give you glory and we we thank you for watching and caring for us being with us every step. We are all sympathetic to those who are on our list, (coughs) and we're praying, Father, that there will be recovery for them, or at least certainly comfort in the difficulties that they're facing. And we pray for comfort for Irene Baker and John Dryden, and we're just praying, Lord, you'll bless their families as they tend to them. Be with Martha Eaton, that her health (coughs) can improve and that she can soon be able to get the treatment, especially for a foot, that's going to work. Pray for Austin Wentz, that he will have good days. We pray for Joan Mormon, that her shoulder will heal and that she will get normal use out of it again. We pray for Brian Rowland in his foot recovery. Bless Sue Mason's brother, Ricky. And we pray whatever setback he's had that He's getting the treatment that's going to help remedy it. Please be with Eddie Smith, Keith's father-in-law, in his recovery from broken hip. Be with Quitman as he's going through therapy. We pray for Philip Coates, that his knee is going to heal and he's going to feel better. Bless Larry Wallace and the treatments he's enduring. Be with Terry Green, that the time spent in these chemo treatments is going to pay off. We pray, Father, your richest blessings on Sandy and her family as she is going through these last stages of cancer. We just pray for comfort and that she will have some really, really good days with her family. We ask your blessings on Verlin Davis, that she'll have good days and that you'll bless her caregivers. We pray for Geraldine Taylor, that her rehab will be on schedule and that she will be better soon. Bless David Yates as most likely waiting for a liver transplant. We pray for Hannah Peck, who's recovering in Prattville. We just pray your blessings on her that she's getting kind of attention that she really needs. Bless Flora Warner as she's had some health issues, and Donnie, as he's had the hip replacement surgery. We pray you'll have a good success with that. Bless Pat Poff, who's been having heart problems, and Stevens, who's got severe health problems. Bless Jeff Goff, and his recovery with his back injury. 
bless Stella Pittman as she makes adjustments to her new home and we pray that she'll enjoy being at the Meadows. Pray blessings on Trent Allen as he's moving into hospice care and Lord, we just pray that he will have good days. Be with Jenny Martin, who's in critical care in Tupelo, and we pray that she can get the treatment she needs. And be with Bobby Davis, who has this severe blockage. We know that some procedures that have been tried already aren't working, so we pray that something good will come that will help to alleviate his situation. Lord, please bless us tonight as we are studying your word, and we just pray, Lord, you'll help us to not, not only understand the things that we're reading, but through that to just re-fortify our belief in Jesus as your son. And it's in his name that we gratefully pray. Amen. All right. So we're in John chapter 9. We're there because we're studying the healing of the blind man. So uh, these signs, uh, seven primary signs throughout the book, um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that was the heal. What, what sign was that? Remember? Turning the water into wine, okay. Chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, that's a healing. That was a healing of, remember? The nobleman's son, Okay. In the case of the water to wine, that was a demonstration of his power over quality, because it was the very best. The healing of the nobleman's son is his power over distance, because it was about 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana. Then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, we have what sign? Okay, we have the healing of the man with the infirmity. He had been infirm for how long? 38 years. And that's a long time. So, a demonstration of Jesus' power over, I guess, time. <laughs> and then in chapter 6, you have two. The first of those is the one that's mentioned in all of the gospel accounts. And that is what sign? Okay, the feeding of the 5,000. That's in the first 15 verses of chapter 6. The corresponding chapters, Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and Luke chapter 9, if you want to read those. Then the latter part of the chapter, from verses 16 to 21, what miracle is that one? Okay, Jesus is walking on the water, right? And then here we are in chapter 9. Now, this is a big section, so we, we looked at about half of it last time. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, gets the whole story. I wanted to just kind of quickly go through what we had talked about before, because I really think it's important to remember what happened ahead of this. And I mentioned to you that what happens here in chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man Probably the very same day, or at least the very next day, of the events that are described in chapter 8. I mention that because a lot of what you find in chapter 8 kind of re-establishes itself. Or, I don't want to say re-established, maybe it's, it's kind of 
putting the, the final emphasis on it, just kind of the, the proof in the miracle. Uh, for instance, in chapter 8 at verse 12, Jesus says what? I am the light of what? I'm the light of the world. That's going to be restated here in this chapter. In verse 32, the, one, of, one of the greatest statements of Scripture, you shall know the truth, and the truth is going to do what? The truth is going to make you free. Now, already you see a couple of things, right? You've got a blind man who, when he meets Jesus, who is the light of the world, ends up doing what? Seeing, right? And then you've got a guy who is embroiled or surrounded by a lot of untruths, but the truth which Jesus represents is going to do what to him? Going to absolutely set him free. And then the other really hallmark statement that's in chapter 8 that kind of reemphasized here in chapter 9 because of the unfolding events is verse 58 of chapter 8. Jesus said before Abraham was what? I am. Now the significance of that statement, I am, through the whole of scripture is basically this. I am in this moment, I am in the past, I am in the future. Wherever there is anything, I am. The all-existing God. And that's why, you know, God could reference Abraham so many generations after his own birth as though he were still living. Because in, in God's all-seeing capacity... Everything that seems to happen, happens kind of together. So the whole hope of salvation and the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, all those generations of people slaying animals and blood being shed, well, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't wash away sins, but what were they anticipating? The sacrifice of Jesus, right? Which is a statement of our book. Jesus is the Lamb of God who... Takes away the sin of the world, right? Okay. So we, we have that emphasis there in chapter 8, but it's, it's really nailed down here in this text. So that's, that's why he says he just kind of passed by. And you'll remember I pointed out to you that he actually was passing by or actually trying to pass through because people had decided to do what once he said he was I am. <laughs> Picked up stones and were going to put him to, <coughs> put him to death. So he saw a man who was blind from birth and we noted... This guy didn't call out to Jesus. Jesus saw him because right here, Jesus is going to use the blindness as an opportunity to put the glory of God on display. Disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents? He was born blind. And we referenced, you remember, kind of the misconception of Old Testament theologians or the rabbis of this time in particular, that they would draw out obscure passages like Genesis 4, 7, and apply the idea of sin um, stooped at the door, which was applied to Cain as he was ready to take vengeance on his brother out of jealousy, they would use that idea of sin on its perch to kind of have the idea of how children come into the world and, you know, how, how they're good and bad and all of that. All of that was a misconception a misunderstanding 
And as a result of that, these disciples, kind of steeped in the traditions of their times, had the same misunderstandings that most people did. So they wanted to know, you know, who's responsible for that? Some people even took it a step further and said, well, you know, maybe, maybe the idea is that God's going to punish the sin of the parents on the children. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, you know, up to three or four generations. But what did Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 tell us? You remember? The soul that sins, it what? It shall die. In other words, I'm not responsible for my father's sins. I'm responsible for whose sin? I'm responsible for my sin. In fact, he goes on in that text to say, the son's sin isn't visited on his father, nor the father on the son. Righteousness on righteousness or wickedness on wickedness. Not just that sin might be transferred, but I can't either do righteousness and apply that to somebody else. We are all responsible for ourselves. And we stand before God responsible for ourselves. So Jesus says, no, no, that's not it. Neither this man nor his parents sin." But, and then this was the reference that I made, that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, here's a situation. There were lots of people who were infirmed in Jesus' time. He could have, you know, healed everybody. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to teach or to establish that he's the son of God. And here, even in, a, even in what I'm going to say is kind of an emergency situation. We just had people want to stone him to death. He stops and says, oh, wait, here's a great opportunity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show something. Now, he's already said I am. And if you connect that I am statement with him being before Abraham in verse 58, connect that with what he had said earlier in verse 12 about being, <coughs> about being the light of the world, then this is going to really, like I said, nail the thing down. It becomes the mechanism for belief in what Jesus could do. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In the daytime you have what? Light. And the night is coming when no man can work. So Jesus is all about the, again, those connections. He's all about the light, not the darkness. As long as I'm in the world, I am. And then there's that statement again. I am the lie of the world. So what he had said in chapter 8 that ultimately resulted in people wanting to take his life as I am, Jesus restates it, and now he's going to prove it. He's going to establish it with this guy that just kind of presented himself as an opportunity. While he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And We also noticed that, okay, so... There were folks in that time, and, and I, believe, I believe this is probably still true in some circles, believe that a fasting saliva, uh, and what I mean by fasting is they didn't fast for several days, the first saliva of the day, when you wake up in the morning, all those germs and so forth have kind of mingled in your mouth, and you know how awful that is? But it's chock full of all kinds of good stuff, apparently, to their mind. And so to them, it kind of had some magical properties, if you could use that. So Jesus is using the saliva, and he'll <laughs> use the clay, and ultimately he'll use the pool of Siloam as a vehicle through which this man's faith is going to be built. 
Ultimately, it is Jesus who brings the miracle to come to pass. In fact, could Jesus have just done it remotely and saved himself the hassle of the possibility of being stoned? Of course he could. He could have from 20 miles away. I'll tell you, he could have from 500 miles away. (laughs) Jesus is the son of God. But Jesus uses a vehicle or a platform, a means uh, in order to establish something. This guy doesn't know Jesus. First of all, he doesn't know Jesus. Secondly, he's not quite sure about what's going on. And what better way to kind of get him on the hook than to use something that maybe he would have thought, maybe that, maybe that would work. I mentioned to you the pool of Siloam. Siloam was 20 feet wide by 30 feet long and 4 feet deep. Pretty sizable pool. The purpose of it was to gather water. The water was fed to it through an aqueduct, which actually was built by Hezekiah during the right before the time that Sennacherib came and was going to siege the city of Jerusalem. It was two feet wide, about two feet wide, six feet deep, and 583 yards long dug into solid rock. Now, we look at that and we go, boy, that was a big job. What in the world? But back in that time, that was going to save a lot of effort carrying water into the city. So, yes. Oh, you did? Okay, that's pretty neat. All right. An eyewitness right there. So, kind of a novel thing, but I only mentioned that to make the point that uh, this guy wasn't going to some obscure place. This is a major water gathering area. So, there are going to be people there. When this guy washes in the pool of Siloam, guess what's going to happen? You say, well, he's going to see. What's his reaction going to be? Wow! Wow! People knew him because they had seen him where? Begging around. If you're blind, I mean, you are basically relegated to the, what was called the gift of the cup. So you basically held a cup up and uh, Jews, religious-minded Jews, felt obligated to give into the cup. That was kind of the means of taking care of those who were less fortunate. So, I mean, that's what he's relegated to in his life. Now he's going to wash in the pool of Siloam, and what happens? Well, he washed, and he came back singing. And so verse 8 says, the neighbors and those who were previously had seen that he was blind, they said, is not this who said and begged? Isn't that him? Why did they say that? <coughs> Isn't that him? Because it seems out of character. It's not normal. This guy's normally begging. He's sitting down over corner of the street over there. Now, this is the guy. We've never really seen him like this. He's got his eyes open looking at us. Some said, yeah, that, uh, that's him. Others said he's like him. And what did he say? He said, hey, it's me. It's me. I'm pretty excited. Come on now. And so they said to him, how were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus. And I want to notice, <coughs> I want to notice this with you in verse 11 because we're going we're to revisit the idea in verse 11, verse 17, verse 33, verse 35, verse 38. There is a progression that happens with this man. The blind man. 
The first thing that he says in his understanding of who Jesus is, verse 11, a man. Now just, I don't know how you remember things, but just kind of put a hook right there where he refers to him as a man. A man called Jesus, made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. <clears throat> so I went and washed and I received sight. Talk about vehicles. Um, when you're baptized, you're baptized in water. Does water literally wash your flesh so that the sins that you've committed are, you know, is there a special soap or something? No, no. First uh, Peter 3, verse 21, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. But it happens through the resurrection of Jesus. It, it is in the action of the death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6, 3, and 4. It's not in the water, but it's in the obedience of the command to be baptized in the water. Same was happening here. Jesus put the clay, the spit, and by the way, that isn't the only time Jesus did something like that. Mark chapter 7, verse 33, he healed a guy's hearing and his inability to speak. And guess what he used? Yeah, he used, used the spit again. I don't know. I, I just don't like that mode of action. But anyway, kind of gross. But that's what happened here. So we got a mode. Same thing happened with, let's say, Naaman. How many times did Naaman have to wash in the Jordan River? Had to wash seven times. Would it have been good enough to be washed, say, in one of those rivers over there in um, his hometown, Damascus? He said, it's cleaner over in Damascus. Come on. I don't like this nasty water. He wouldn't have been good for the spit, would he? <laughs> I don't want any dirty water. But it, it isn't really about that water. It is about obedience. He was washed six times and was his leprosy removed? Not yet. It took the seventh time. When he came forth out of the water on the seventh dip, what happened? Unbelievable. And he was so thankful, so grateful. And this is the same truth here. I obeyed. He told me to wash. I washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Why doesn't he know where Jesus is? <laughs> he had never seen him, right? I know the guy's name. I know he's Jesus. <coughs> but <coughs> he told me to do this. And that meant I had to travel and, and go to the pool. And I haven't seen him since. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know where he is. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. If, if this were in a movie, right here is when the bad guys with the black hats would show up and you'd hear that thing, dun-dun-dun, right? Because these are the religious abusers of the time. So they brought him to the Pharisees. And, and by the way, why do you think they did that? Why take him to the Pharisees? Okay, it's evidence, clearly something remarkable has happened. Yes or no? Yes. When you talk about somebody being healed from blindness, clearly that has to be from whom? 
That has to be from God. So the natural next step is, wow, look what's happened. Let's take him to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees are, re- <coughs> are recognized as what in their society? They're, yeah, I mean, they're at the top. You can't even get close to one of those guys because they kept themselves ceremonially, ceremonially pure, clean, kind of kept a kind of kept a curb around them. Don't want to mess with those guys. They are the very represent, living representation of holiness. Now you say, wait a minute, God had already established that the high priest was that. In fact, <coughs> he wore the turban and had the words across the top, holiness to the Lord. But tell me something about the high priests of their time. <laughs> you know, the money changers and all of that, that was happening in the temple. Who ruled the temple? The Sadducees, who were the sect that the high priest and all those great Jewish leaders were a part of. And so they were corrupt. They were about the money. They were about institutionalizing religion for their own monetary gain. So instead of taking him to the high priest, which was the Old Testament remedy, if a miracle happened, you take him to the temple, right? And you give the offering. This is amazing. But not here. We're going to take them to the Pharisees because... Really, they represent to us someone at least who could give us some answers. Now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again, had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed in a sea. Has his story changed? Thank you for the water, by the way. Has his story changed? No, he's still saying the same thing. It's the Sabbath. To them, that was a big deal, right? Because something's happened on the Sabbath. We're going to... Now, like I gave you two passages of Scripture just to peruse. One was Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 16. That uses the example of Jesus coming down on the religious leaders of his time. You know, if they had an ox in the ditch, what would they do? they get the ox out. I mean, come on. Seriously? I mean, really? And yet Jesus is doing a miracle and remedying a guy's blindness. And they're like, oh no, he worked when he made clay. You know, he got down there and he messed with the dirt. Seriously? Um, In Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, Jesus makes really to me what, what defines the whole thing about the Sabbath. He makes the statement that the Sabbath was made for, uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, what? I mean, it was a rest day. Who was that for? You work six days, you should have a day off. We'll canonize that. That will become the law. If you break it, you'll be stoned to death. Okay, we t- that's serious. However, if, if it means... Healing a man of his blindness? Or in the example, the common everyday example that he gave of getting a, a, you know, a donkey or an oxen out of the ditch? I mean, using reasonableness in the situation. Question, how is a person healed of their blindness? Well, that, that has to come from none other than the power of God. It should dawn on us 
And this is what they're going to get at because they accuse Jesus. But it should dawn on us, if, if this has happened by the power of God, then who sanctioned it? Well, God did, right? God did, absolutely. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had done it. And he said, same story. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Okay, let's look at these accusations that are made about Jesus. Well, did Jesus keep the Sabbath? (laughs) Absolutely, Jesus did. What does Hebrews 4.15 tell us about Jesus? He was tempted in every way as we are, yet what? Without sin, Jesus did not commit sin. So Jesus kept the law that he was under. He was born under the law, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. So Jesus kept those things. There's no, no doubt about that. That's a false accusation. They're using their own interpretation or their hedge around the law in order to indict him. But Jesus had answered to that. Uh, actually, the, you know, um, the statement in Mark 2, 27 and 28. He's already answered that. Uh, this man is not from God, they say, because of that. But once you rule that out, that's out of the equation. Other people said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? Why were they calling him a sinner? It could be the Sabbath. It, it also, I mean, these, these people... Remember, in chapter 8, people just like them had picked up stones and were going to do what to him? They are going to stone him to death. Because he, they considered him to be a blasphemer connecting himself with, with God. You know, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He's saying, I'm God. They're ready to take his life then. This guy's got a lot on him and a lot of accusations being made. And there was division among them. But the division, what kind of division is it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of like the division is not between those who are pro-Jesus and those who are against Jesus. It's kind of like which camp against Jesus are you in? Because we've got all these negative things to say about him. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And he said, verse 17, he is a prophet. Okay, those of you who put the hook in your mind a moment ago, what did he say in verse 11? He is a man. Now, as we've kind of gone along, <coughs> we've had the interview with folks and kind of putting things together. He comes to the conclusion now here in verse 17. No, he isn't just a man. He's what? He's, he's a prophet. Now, that's pretty significant, especially given the I am statements that are kind of surrounding in here and what we're going to later learn about Jesus. The, the declaration of prophet is pretty significant all through the book of John, but it is a biblical, a biblical concept. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, and when Moses was on the scene, what was Moses anticipating would eventually come? There would come a prophet like him who was what? 
greater than him. Who is that referencing? That's, that's Jesus, right? The prophet. Back in chapter 4 at verse 19, and that actually is the scene of the woman at the well. The woman at the well, when she kind of started seeing some things about Jesus and, and all that he was able to say about her, she made this declaration that he was a prophet. In chapter 6, following the feeding of the 5,000, guess what they said in verse 14 of that text? Well, you know, <laughs> they, they called him the prophet, okay? Uh, the prophet, as is connected with Moses, is talked about in the sermon that's recorded in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. And actually, that's the quotation in the New Testament from uh, Deuteronomy 18 verse 18. So you, you've got a lot, lot of emphasis going there. In fact, if you go all the way back to John chapter 1 at verse 45... That is in the conversion of Nathaniel. Nathaniel makes a statement that most of the disciples made only at the end, after Jesus had died, had been resurrected and came back. He talks about Jesus actually being the fulfillment of what Moses had been prophesying and talking about and about what the prophets had been talking about. So there's all that <coughs> kind of that background information concerning Jesus as the prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. When you read the word until, what does that tell you eventually fleshes out? Yeah, they didn't believe it until they did believe it. They believed it because <clears throat> they had good testimony. And they asked him, saying, Is this not your son? who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? What's the insinuation there? You say he was born blind. He's been a fake all these many years, hasn't he? <laughs> really? We're going to find that these parents say, hey, you need to ask him these questions because he is of age. To be of age meant that you were at least 30 years old or older. So... I mean, he's been, if he's been faking it, he's been faking it a long time and no one ever caught on. Now until this moment, is this your son? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, <laughs> ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he is Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Excommunication. They were going to be kicked out of not only their faith, but their communities. The threat that action is going to be taken scared of these folks. In fact, that's something pretty common through the scriptures, the antagonizing of those who were followers of Jesus. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. Again, they're on that, that hook. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I told you already, and you'd not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? So after the testimony is given, the evidence is laid out there, he becomes a little bit frustrated, right? Why is it that you don't accept what it is that you hear? Clearly, we are being invaded. So we're going to stop here. Thank you for your attention tonight. And we'll get ready for our devotion.
Good evening, everybody. It's great to see you. I hope you've had a wonderful week so far. We have just a few announcements to keep everybody abreast of activities here. I have a couple of folks I want you to especially remember in your prayers. One is Sandy Bonham. She is undergoing hospice care at home, and that's just started this week. And also Trent Allen. He is going to be going to sanctuary for hospice care. Uh, both of them are uh, terminally ill with cancer, and we just want to remember them in our prayers and praying that uh, their circumstances will at least be uh, filled with quality and they can enjoy their families. Have these events that are coming up. If you have a bulletin, you might take note of those and mark them and choose to be involved in some of these events. The Golden Circle is going to be going to the dinner bell in car rent for lunch on Monday, March the 28th. The bus is going to leave at 11 a.m. The Boonville Church recently made a one-time donation of $5,000 to the Ukraine relief effort. If you'd like to make a personal donation to this effort above your weekly contribution, you can make your checks out to the Boonville Church with Ukraine relief effort in the memo. And this can be given either to Billy Martin or to Doug Smith. On Sunday afternoons, uh, you know, we have our, our 5 p.m. gathering. We're going to start partaking of the Lord's Supper in the chapel after the opening assembly and before the beginning of the Bible classes. That worked really well this past Sunday, and uh, that way we don't forget it or we don't get in a rush to get over here. So please remember that after the initial gathering and right before you go to Bible class, if you need to partake the Lord's Supper, you can go to the chapel. The Golden Circle is going to be going to the Tammy Wynette Legacy Center on Friday, March the 25th. We're going to be eating at Kelly's Kitchen. The bus is going to leave at 8.30 a.m. If you're planning to go, this is basically your last chance to get your name on that list, and it's out there in the foyer. Anthony Acox is going to lead us in our singing, then I'll have some devotional thoughts. Mark number 902. Number 902 for nothing but the blood for the song of invitation. Then turn to number 470. 470.
In John chapter 5 and verse 39, you have this. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Now, I've had this happen several times. Somebody brought by a peach fried pie. Mmm. What if you took that peach fried pie and you did a chemical analysis on it? Mmm. Learned what was in that crust and in that peach. Don't you think if you did that, you'd have missed the point? I'll be honest with you, I've never missed the point on a peach fried pie. I eat it, don't you? That's what they're good for. Or let's say that you go to the mountains and you stay in this beautiful lodge. In the lodge, there's this huge picture window. Looks over a magnificent view. And what you do is you start analyzing the construction of the window and the frame. Wow. You know, when you do that, you miss something again, right? What you should do is stand there and look at the beautiful view. So you've just been in a Bible class. And Bible classes take on a lot of different purposes. We analyze a text or deal with a subject in order to learn what God wants us to know. That's typically how we approach it. We look at a text, we dig into it, and, and maybe in digging into it, we want to get the meat of that word. And so we analyze every term. Let's be careful that we don't make the same mistake in analyzing things that we would make if we missed how delicious a fried pie was or how beautiful the scenery out of the window could be. Sure, let's understand the truth of the scriptures, but don't miss the thing that it's there for. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them, in the scriptures themselves, you think you have eternal life. But he says, these, those scriptures, they're, they're the very things that testify of me. In other words, don't miss the most important thing. Don't miss Jesus. Maybe in your study of the scriptures tonight, you saw Jesus. And maybe in that interaction through the scriptures, you came to believe in him as the son of God. Belief is a qualifier in our salvation. It makes it possible for us to take another step, and that is obedience to the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So tonight, if you came to believe Jesus is the Son of God and you're ready to take the next step in obedience, why don't you come forward?
repenting of sin, confessing your faith, and being buried in water to have your sins washed away. If you're already a child of God, maybe your experience with Jesus tonight, if it hasn't simply reaffirmed your faith, perhaps it's made that light shine brighter in you and maybe identified some things that were amiss. If you need to repent tonight or confess wrong, we have that opportunity available to us as well. If there's anybody who needs to respond, now's your opportunity. Why don't you come forward if you need to while we stand together and sing. Father, we're so thankful for this time that we could gather together in the middle of our busy and hectic weeks, God, to, to focus on each other and to focus on you. Uh, we're so thankful that uh, we could be renewed and refreshed as we go to continue our week this week, God. I ask that you would uh, bring back those who aren't with us, uh, help return them to us once again, help us to reach out to them as well. And uh, just keep us safe and bring us back next appointed time. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen.